Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, April 18th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. I want to let you know at the outset of the show that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Harry's Razors, a company that is disrupting the shaving industry by, at long last, finally offering a high-quality shaving experience for a fraction of the price that you are, I'm sure, used to paying. It only costs $15 for a Harry's razor set that includes a handle, three blades, and shave cream, and also that is shipped to your door. The shipping is included in that price. And in fact, today, if you go to harrys.com, a Harry's shaving set is even cheaper because if you use this promo code, Inquiring Minds. And that's all one word, Inquiring Minds. They will knock $5 off your first purchase. So go on over to harrys.com, buy some razors, use the promo code Inquiring Minds, and uh, check back with us. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing a hero of mine. He's the polymath Jared Diamond, who won the Pulitzer for his book Guns, Germs, and Steel. And this was one of those books that when I read it, it really changed my life. Uh, it made me think about the world in a different way. And what's amazing about Jared Diamond is that he's a, he is a polymath. He was originally trained in physiology. Uh, so, you know, he did work on the gallbladder. And then he felt that he couldn't make enough of an impact on the world. So instead, he became a master in several other fields, including anthropology, ecology, evolutionary biology, and now he's actually the, a professor of geography at UCLA. He's described as America's best-known geographer. And he's just adapted his very first book, The Third Chimpanzee, that looks at our evolutionary history and why it is that we, as humans, are so different from our nearest cousins, the chimpanzees. He's adapted it for young adults. So I took this opportunity to talk to him about the fate of our own civilization, given that he's done a lot of work on what's happened to ones in the past. But here's what he had to say about our relationship with chimpanzees. When the numbers finally came out in the 1980s, it turned out we are 98% genetically identical to chimpanzees, which means that the reason why you and I are talking and we're not locked up in cages, whereas chimpanzees are not talking and are locked up in cages, all that lies in 2% of our DNA, raising the question, what exactly is in that 2% that accounts for you and me talking and not being in cages? So, Indre, I just want to say people need to, and I know they will, they need to listen to what happens after the clip you just played, which is that you actually have a mini scientific debate with Jared Diamond, which is awesome, over the fact that, you know, we have language and chimps don't. He has one reason uh, why that might be. You suggested another. You suggested it might be a cognitive difference. He's saying it's more of a mechanical voice box. And I'm like, wow, Indre just debated Jared Diamond, hats off. And he admitted there's a 50% chance that you're right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I was definitely thrilled. I, I wouldn't quite say debated. Okay, as, you I'm know, glorifying <laughs> it because it's just so cool. But yeah, there was a point in the interview where I had one of those, you know, shivers down my spine where I was saying something and he actually wrote something down. And I just oh, thought, oh, my wow. God. Did I just give Jared Diamond a new idea? I mean, you know, it's probably just for his grocery list or something, but it certainly <laughs> made me feel special. <laughs> that's awesome because this was in person, right? This was actually, you were there in the room with him. Exactly. So that's our interview for today. But first, let's talk about some science in the news. So, 
you know, there are certain patients in history that have become famous because they've been well studied and often they're very quirky. And in neuroscience, there are a handful of patients that are really special. One of them is known as HM or was known as HM, Henry Mollison. And you know, he's attributed with helping us discover that memory is not a unitary thing, that we can think about memory in many different ways and that things like facts and events are stored in a different part of the brain from things like skills and habits. But there's actually a somewhat less famous patient who in some ways made an even more interesting discovery possible about memory, and that is KC. And we now know that his name is Kent Cochran. He's just passed away. And he's a Canadian rebel or was a Canadian rebel. Um, he, he sort of had this kind of rebellious life. And in his 30s, he had a motorcycle accident that left him in a coma um, with some pretty severe brain damage, including to both of his hippocampi, which is the part of the brain that was also damaged in HM. So this is the part of the brain in the medial temporal lobe that allows us to form new long-term memories, especially those that are related to consciousness. So our memory for facts and events. But although HM allowed us to separate these kind of consciously based memories from skills and habits, things that, you know, you don't need your consciousness for, like, it doesn't help for you to know what muscles are involved in riding a bike. You know, it, in fact, sometimes it hurts you. Uh, so those, those two types of memories are stored separately. But within this kind of declarative memory realm, there are facts and there are events. And we tend to remember them in different ways. So facts, we've encountered multiple times. Events, by definition, have only happened once. And when we recollect them, we kind of recreate the experience that we the, of the event, right? We kind of go back in time. And KC was studied by the, the very famous um, neurosci neuroscientist or psychologist Endel Tolving, uh, who's also Canadian, but of Estonian descent. And he coined the terms um, recollection versus familiarity and episodic versus semantic, distinguishing this idea that we can go back in time, travel back in time uh, in order to experience a memory. What's amazing about KC is that he taught us not only that episodic and semantic memories seem to have different neural underpinnings, but also that if you can't imagine the past, that is, if you don't have the capacity to recreate a memory from the past, you can't imagine the future. And that's kind of one of those like, you know, mind blowing moments in neuroscience that sort of now it seems intuitive. Sure, you know, it's the same, same processes involved, but kind of amazing to think about. So this is, this is one of the things that made KC a famous patient, but also, you know, the impact that he's had on neuroscience. Well, there's a lot of uh, things that this makes me want to ask because it's a fascinating topic and story. You can't imagine the future. Wh why is it, is it your sense of time or is it your sense of what it is to have a, a meaningful moment. Well, I think it's more about what it takes to sort of recreate all those different scenarios. And if you think about what you're doing when you're imagining a future scenario, there's a lot of things that you're doing that are very similar to what you're doing when you're reimagining what happened in the past, right? You're, you're trying to recreate a context or a situation in your mind's eye, as it were. And so the same brain regions are involved in this process of recreation. And I like to talk about how closely tied then memory is to imagination and therefore what we think of as creativity, that these two things are very closely linked. So I guess I, I'm also find myself wondering how many of these amazing patients are there? Are they, are they exceedingly rare? I mean, we all hear about Phineas Gage, the guy who got the metal beam, you know, launched in some industrial accident through his head, and then he actually survived and was all kinds of things were learned from him. I mean, and th these are a couple others. Do, do you get a lot of these? I mean, or, or is it extremely rare? I mean, they're, they're, these kinds of patients that have, that, that, you know, create paradigm shifts in neuroscience are, of course, pretty rare. And, you know, the, the paradigm shift that Phineas Gage taught us is that you can, you can blow out a huge part of your prefrontal cortex and essentially still function in the world, right? So his personality changed, but, you know, he was still pretty much cognitively intact, which, which was shocking to people. Um, 
And, you know, KC and HM taught us a lot about memory systems. And there are certain other patients that, that sort of have that kind of huge influence. But more importantly, it's the people who study these patients that make them famous, right? And Endel Tulving is a wonderful storyteller. Brenda Milner, who studied HM, another wonderful storyteller. And the fact that they're able to, you know, grasp the significance of these patients is really what makes the patients famous. I mean, there are certainly lots of other people who have interesting injuries, but, you know, largely they, it's, it's the neuroscientists that have to figure out the implications of their injury. Well, I mean, it's, it's of course, a tragedy uh, what happens to the individuals, but in a sense, they also do get uh, remembered and get sort of a kind of powerful obituary because they, obviously, they didn't mean to, but they advanced knowledge. Yeah. And, you know, they have to they have to participate in these experiments. So we're very grateful for that. But, you know, people like KC have just completely shifted the way we think about the brain. So much so, in fact, that I would argue that by studying someone like KC, you start to see how misplaced the idea of mapping the brain might be. Um, because it's not just that one region has one function, you know, each region has multiple functions. And so, you know, this whole brain mapping thing, in some ways, is not going to be the whole story in the end. Well, we're going to have to talk more about that because I know that you have, you know a lot here. We have to sort of do a whole show on this at some <laughs> point. But let's let's move on to the other, well, there are many, but one other thing that we've got to talk about this week. So, Indre, did you see the blood moon or at least did you see pictures of it? Uh, well, I just had a baby. So, the only <laughs> thing I see at night is a diaper or a mouth to feed. So, okay, um, I okay. mean, I've seen pictures, but I, I, you know, that's not quite the same. So earlier this week, the world freaked out about this. What we're talking about here, for those who somehow don't know already, is that there was a total lunar eclipse, and it was basically Monday night slash Tuesday morning, and it had the effect of making the moon appear red in color. This happened because the Earth was exactly between the sun and the moon. They all think of them all three being in a line. So the earth is blocking out the sun's light and the moon is in the earth's shadow. And in this situation, you might think the moon would totally go dark, but that's not what happens because the earth is not a barren rock. It has an atmosphere. The atmosphere is many miles thick. The, the sun's rays then still pass through the atmosphere during the lunar eclipse, but the atmosphere filters out part of the light spectrum, leaving behind this reddish look, and that falls on the moon, and people go, oh my god, there's a bloody moon, a blood moon. Um, but it turns out that this is even more sort of fraught or weighted with significance for some, and we'll talk about them a little more in a second, because this is the beginning of a tetrad of these total lunar eclipses. There are going to be three more that are going to occur on October 8th, and then in 2015 on April 4th and September 28th. Okay, so in the distant past, seeing the moon turn red, kind of like seeing a comet, it prompted all manner of fear and superstition. What's amazing is that in this day and age, this still happens. And in particular, there's a Christian pastor named John Hagee, who has actually written a book entitled Blood Moons, Something is About to Change, and it's an end times interpretation of the tetrad of these events. And as Hagee puts it, God is literally screaming at the world, I'm coming soon. So I just want to tell you a funny thing. We went uh, at Mother Jones, we went to the creationist website Answers in Genesis, and we actually found they were debunking this idea that the blood moon means the world is ending. So the young earth creationists who deny huge swaths of modern science nevertheless are quite sensible on this. So let me do something that I never do, which is to favorably quote Answers in Genesis, who says, the timing of the eclipses, while interesting, falls far short of the sort of signs that will cause the heavens to shake. So let's not freak out. Uh, but uh, clearly on October 8th, the world is going to end because that's the day after my birthday. Oh, so <laughs> I didn't know you were part of this prophecy. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it is. It's, it is, of course, really interesting to hear about in history when people didn't who didn't understand why the blood moons happened, that it makes sense that they would they would see it as a sign. Um, but the fact that it's happening even in this day and age really just goes to show you how certain people will take advantage of almost anything uh, in order to put forth their own ideas. Yeah, they will. And, and let me just, you know, I want to read you a, a tweet from a former guest, Neil deGrasse Tyson, just giving context on all this. Uh, he tweeted uh, the other day, total eclipses occur every couple of years or so. If anyone calls them rare, ask them if they feel that way about the Olympics. So, <laughs> so I think that was a helpful bit of context. And let me just add a little more. According to NASA, 
there are going to be eight separate sets of these tetrads, which is four of these total lunar eclipses in a row during the 21st century. So again, let's not freak out. This happens. You can get four in a row. Yeah, and, and I'm sure NASA's exactly right. So um, speaking of the end of the world, let's take a short break and come back with my interview with Jared Diamond. So here's a thing that I think most of us have experienced at one time or another. I know I have. You go to the drugstore. You need new blades for your razor. You look at the price for the refills, and you basically faint because of how much they cost. And you also notice at the same time that the razors are locked away. They're under lock and key in the store. And you need an employee to come with a key to unlock the case so you can buy one because these things are so expensive that they literally have to be locked up because otherwise, I guess, people are going to steal them. And you say to yourself, good grief, why do I keep doing this? So that's where Harry's Razors come in. This is a company that is disrupting the shaving industry by actually making a good shave affordable again. It only costs $15 for a Harry's Razor set that includes a handle, three blades, and shave cream, and it's shipped to your door. Shipping is included in that price. And in fact, today a Harry's shaving set is even cheaper because we have a special offer for Inquiring Minds listeners. If you go to harrys.com and use the promo code inquiringminds, that's one word, inquiringminds, you can save $5 off of your first purchase. Now, I say this as a Harry's Razor user because I laid down my Mach 3 to try out this less expensive product. And I have to say, not only does it give you a good shave, I actually think my skin was less irritated afterwards. That's pretty impressive, and I'm going to keep on using them. So once again, this is a special offer for you today from Harry's Razors, and just for Inquiring Minds listeners. So go to harrys.com, use the promo code Inquiring Minds, and save five bucks off your first purchase. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Jared Diamond. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you on our show, and especially now that you've done something very different compared to your other books. You've put out a book that is specifically for young adults of your first book, The Third Chimpanzee. That's right. I had this this fantasy based on some reality that my books were readable to young people because the fact is that my books, including The Third Chimpanzee, have been widely adopted in high schools and even to the horror of my sons in their middle school. But the fact is that the, this young people's version is much more user-friendly. It is shorter than my adult version. My wife complains that I give 37 examples when two would suffice, and so we've got it down to two examples. It's cleaned up. There's less on sex here and less explicit on sex, but otherwise, all the material of the adult version is here, and I think it's more compact and more easily grasped by younger people. Well, I have to say that I was barely, I think, out of high school when Gunsters and Steel came out, and I loved it. And I, I thought it was very readable. It was uh, it really changed sort of my life in a lot of ways, actually, in terms of how I regard the world. Um, so I, I was also skeptical about whether or not we needed a young adult version of something that's so well written. Uh, but I agree with you that there are some things about this book that um, I think are really interesting. In particular, uh, I feel like there is a clarity here uh, that Sometimes, you know, when you have some of your denser books, um, you know, you kind of get caught up in a lot of, as you say, these examples. Um, and here I felt that, you know, I could read this book in, in a couple hours and get a lot of ideas out of it anyway. It is easier um, to read. The, uh, the adult version, of course, has a lot more detail in it. But also, this is a smaller book. And just to give you an idea of the advantage of a smaller book, my adult books have been translated into quite a few foreign languages. And the length of a translation differs generally from English. German translations, for example, are 30% longer than the English text. And so my best friends in Germany tell me, um, Jared, um, your, your book it's just too heavy for us to read in bed lying on our backs. It'll be easier with the young people's version. Absolutely. I mean, every German word is 30% longer than its English counterpart, I think. <laughs> Probably not. But in any case, um, it's also beautifully illustrated, which is wonderful. Did you have any input on the illustrations? Yes. My input on the illustrations was to cheer and approve the wonderful selection of illustrations by my publisher. <laughs> 
Well, let's get into the heart of the matter. Um, you start out the book by demonstrating how genetically similar we are to our nearest relatives, the chimpanzees. In fact, so much so that humans and chimpanzees are more similar to each other than many other closely related species of other animals. So one example that you give is a series of songbirds um, that look very similar and seem to behave very similarly to each other. Um, and yet they shared less genetic material than we do with the chimpanzees. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the implications of this profound idea. That was one of the biggest surprises of human research in the 1980s. And in fact, the reason for the title of the book, The Third Chimpanzee, is that until the 1980s, if any biologist had been asked, what do you think is the genetic similarity between humans and chimpanzees, which everybody acknowledges are our closest relatives, similar to us in anatomy, etc., biologists would have guessed, well, maybe we're 60 to 70 percent shared DNA with chimpanzees. But when the numbers finally came out in the 1980s, it turned out we are 98 percent genetically identical to chimpanzees, which means that the reason why you and I are talking and we're not locked up in cages, whereas chimpanzees are not talking and are locked up in cages, all that lies in 2% of our DNA, raising the question, what exactly is in that 2% that accounts for you and me talking and not being in cages? But not only that, it also begs the question of the influence of culture, which must be therefore huge. If we have so much genetic material that we're sharing, then our environment, if one takes the view that genes and the environment can be separated in terms of their effects on us, um, the environment must have a much greater effect than our genes. The environment created by humans, of course. Chimpanzees also have culture. West African chimpanzees use anvils to pound nuts and East African chimpanzees um, don't. But chimpanzees have not been shown to have an expressive language the way humans do. Humans dress in different clothes. As you walk down the streets of an American city, you can look at someone and from their clothes, you can take a good guess where around the world they come from. So culture, yes, does have an enormous effect on, on our behavior. And so you also talk in the book about the Great Leap Forward, which essentially describes a major change in our evolutionary history that took us from being much more pri primate-like uh, into what seems to make us human. So can you talk us, uh, tell us a little bit about what drove the Great Leap Forward? That's one of the big incompletely solved questions. So the great leap forward is that from the archaeological record, from the fossil record, looking at the stuff that humans left behind, we were basically glorified chimpanzees until 100,000 years ago. That's to say we did not have art. The stone tools of a few hundred thousand years ago look Un, um, unhappily like the stone tools of two million years ago, suggesting that technological change was very slow. And around 80,000 years ago, things start to get interesting fast. The first signs of first art appears, necklaces, pierced ostrich shells. There's rapid invention of tools implying that even though our brains had been big for hundreds of thousand years, we were not doing much interesting with these big brains, at least nothing that showed up preserved in the fossil record. So there was something that led to art and rapid invention 80,000 years ago. That's the great leap forward. Why the great leap forward? I have a theory, of course, which is in the third chimpanzee. And it's that the great leap forward coincides with the perfection of human language. Chimpanzees grunt. Monkeys have Primitive speeches, that's to say vervet monkeys, have different grunts that mean leopard and eagle and snake, but they don't have grammar. And they have three words where Shakespeare has 20,000 words. Or my guess is that once you've got words, once you've got language, then you can brainstorm, you can talk, you can plan, you can relate the past, you can figure out how to make a better tool. And so my hypothesis for why 
the great leap forward is either the perfection of our voice box, that delicate Swiss watch piece of anatomy that allows us to produce, if you are in the Caucasus, 87 different consonants and vowels, and you're, if you're English um, and educated, maybe 26 consonants um, and vowels, whereas chimpanzees, a chimpanzee, baby chimpanzee that was brought up in the home of a clinical psychologist couple along with their baby. By age two, the chimpanzee could pronounce only four consonants and vowels and never got better. But if all you can say is be, ba, di, do, that doesn't get you Shakespeare and it also doesn't let you discuss how to construct atomic bombs and bows and arrows. So my guess is it's the perfection of spoken language. So if it's so I, I'm I'm surprised to hear you say voice box rather than language region in the brain. So I'm a neuroscientist. Just to put it out there, that's where my bias is. Uh, and of course, I've always thought about the Great Leap Forward as being coinciding with the great you know um, proliferation of uh, of neural tissue in our frontal cortex. Uh, but of course, those two things are very uh, different in time. So a lot of neuroscientists think about you know a major change that happened almost you know millions of years before. Or, um, this this sort of sixty thousand year mark or hundred thousand years ago mark that you you give. Um, so, what makes you think that it's a physical change in the voice box rather than something in the brain? There's a fifty percent chance that you are right. That the two leading theories are the one that I favor in the third chimpanzee, namely a change in the anatomy of the voice box. But the leading alternative theory um, is that no, it's a change in wiring in the brain. The problem with a change in wiring in the brain is that it doesn't show up in the fossil record. On the other hand, the voice box, at the time that I wrote the adult third chimpanzee, one suggestion would be that among those parts of a Swiss watch in our voice box, one called the hyoid bone, H-Y-O-I-D, is necessary for differentiated speech. And there had been no discoveries of a hyoid bone in Neanderthals, the primitive humans that we replaced. But since I wrote the adult version, a Neanderthal hyoid bone has been discovered, which means that either the hyoid bone um, uh, does not distinguish Neanderthals and humans in the capacity for speech, or it could be the Neanderthal already did have a capacity for speech. And so the alternative is that it's brain wiring. But now that within the last few years, DNA from Neanderthals has been sequenced, and now that within the last two months, people are starting to get a handle on what is the products of the pieces of DNA that differ between Neanderthals and humans. My guess is that if you and I have this conversation a couple of years from now, one of us will be able to tell the other you were wrong. <laughs> well, I look forward to that moment. <laughs> um, but I also wanted to touch upon something else that maybe, you know, is related to this issue, and that is to what extent language predates some other aspect of our culture, which is of particular interest to me, which is music. So, of course, there's the Steven Pinker view uh, that music is simply auditory cheesecake, uh, that we that that it comes after language in a sense uh, that, you know, we like music because it sort of hits our pleasure centers. But, you know, we didn't evolve to make music. And then there's another uh, theory that, in fact, Music predates language, in particular when you are training your baby to speak, which I'm doing now. I find most of what I'm doing is singing um, to him, you know, in these this kind of mother ease. So what is your opinion on, on this relationship between music and language and our evolution? Music does fossilize in that musical instruments fossilize. And the first preserved musical instruments are flutes and they're playable. They're bone flutes and they're wooden flutes from roughly 40,000 years ago. But that's in the same time range, 40 to 70, 80,000 years, when they developed the first signs for visual arts, ochre decoration, the necklaces, and when also there appear the first signs for rapid invention. To me, that suggests that the there's, there was a package that everything took off within the last 80,000 years, including music, rapid invention, art. My guess is religion. Chimp there's no evidence that chimpanzees have religion. All human groups that we know do have religion. So my guess is that all of that stuff is the product of 
brain, either your view, a different brain, or my view, the the voice box. In short, the evidence for music goes hand in hand with the evidence for visual arts and rapid invention. And that also comes along with this idea that um, maybe one of the reasons why our brains did proliferate even way before this sort of cultural leap forward is because we had to live together in social groups. So there's a man by the name of Robin Dunbar who's put forth the social brain hypothesis, this idea that um, as we had to live in bigger and bigger groups, our brain size had to increase in order to compensate for all the calculations that we need to make in order to navigate you know, the, the swamp of society. <laughs> So what do you think about that view and this idea that, um, in fact, the Great Leap Forward came out of our necessity uh, of living together in larger and larger social groups? The paradox is that the brain was larger. The brain was nearly full size a couple of hundred thousand years ago when human behavior is still uninteresting. Um, so there's something besides a big brain that produces all the interesting stuff such as drug abuse and art and um, uh, invention. So what is the context in which this leap forward happened that can help us understand why it became such a quick change and how vastly different we, we have become from our chimpanzee ancestors, or I should say relatives. I would say the context or the change of context in which the Great Leap Forward occurred, to me, the striking thing about it is the lack of change of context. That's to say the Great Leap Forward 80,000 years ago was in the middle of the Ice Age, and there were glaciers and the world was colder, and the world was colder before that and the world was colder after that and stayed colder for another 60,000 years. Um, in short, there's not a change in the environment that explains the, the um, a great leap forward. On the idea that it has to do with social relationships, one of the few cues to grab onto is that evidence for trade appears with modern homo sapiens, not with Neanderthals. So with sapiens in Europe, Cro-Magnons 40,000 years ago. You get amber from the Baltic coast, from the coast of Lithuania and Latvia and Poland being traded hundreds of miles into Central Europe. You get shells from the coast being traded into Central Europe, whereas with Neanderthals, you don't get this long-distance transport. And the other thing with Neanderthals is that recently a burial, if you can call it that, the skeletons of four Neanderthals, an adult woman and an adult man and two young people from Spain, were dug up. They'd been known, but their DNA was analyzed. Um, and they were dug up in a way that made clear that they had been killed in a brutal way and thrown into a pit. Um, the It turns out that the woman and the man were, I believe, first cousins, and the two young people were evidently their children, suggesting that Neanderthals lived in really small, possibly inbred groups, whereas Homo sapiens today, all the Homo sapiens populations in the modern world, even the technologically simplest Homo sapiens populations, the thing about Homo sapiens is we live in groups minimally 20 to 40 um, people. So that might suggest an expanded social universe, raising again the question why were brains full size 200,000 years ago when there were no flutes and no ostrich shell necklaces? So if there is this big change that happens that might, may or may not be, I know the jury is still out, related to our ability to live in social groups. Uh, do you think that right now, as it seems to us at least, that our social relationships are changing drastically by the internet and social media, are we on the verge of another leap, either forward or backwards? Oh, we're in the middle of a great leap backwards, <laughs> namely with the proliferation during my lifetime, before my lifetime, of at-a-distance communication. So I was born after the telephone and telegraph, but the telephone and telegraph were the first step downhill. With the telephone and telegraph, you can talk to someone without seeing them and reading their expressions. And then comes in television, and now there come in 
the internet and cell phones and text messaging, all of which means that much of our communi- most of our communication today is neither ear-to-ear nor face-to-face. We are losing the capacity to read the social signals. That's why I say it's a great leap downhill. So what do you think are going to be the consequences for Homo sapiens, say, 100 years down the line? Well, the consequences for Homo sapiens 100 years down the line will depend upon the consequences for Homo sapiens 50 years down the line. By that, I mean that the last couple of chapters of the third, the third chimpanzee discuss the various messes that we're making now and the time scale we've got to fix the messes. At present, we, we humans are operating worldwide on a non-sustainable economy. We're exploiting resources, water, energy sources, fisheries, forests at a rate such that most of these resources will get seriously depleted within a few decades. So either by the year 2050, when my twin sons will be 63 years old, either by the year 2050, we've succeeded in developing a sustainable economy, in which case we can then ask you a question about 100 years from now, because there will be 100 years from now, or by 2050, we fail to develop a sustainable economy, which means that there will no longer be first world living conditions, and there either won't be humans 100 years from now, or those humans 100 years from now will have lifestyles similar to those of Cro-Magnons 40,000 years ago, because we've already stripped away the surface copper and the surface iron. Um, if we knock ourselves out of the first world, we're not going to be able to rebuild the first world. So that's one thing that struck me about your book, even though it's adapted for a young audience. Uh, let's just say it's not particularly cheery. <laughs> and you don't mince words in terms of sort of the doomsday scenario that we are facing. So to what extent do you feel that um, young people should be protected from the horrors that may befall us um, versus be informed enough so that they can change it? My book, first of all, I would have to defend my book. Um, It is cheery. I say that we've got big problems, but the problems are ones of our own making. And so my estimate for the chances that we will master our problems and have a happy future, um, I would say the chances are 51%, and the chances of bad ending are only 49%. That's a cautiously optimistic book. Should one conceal from young people the fact that there are big problems, that's a recipe for disaster if young people don't don't know, young people will know anyway but it's young people who are going to feel the consequences of the messes we're making and it's young people ultimately who will solve the problems young people have to understand the problem the reason that i wrote the third chimpanzee and the reason why in the late 1980s after decades of being the world's number one expert on sodium transport and the gallbladder I concluded that gallbladders were not going to save the world the reason was the birth of my twin sons in 1987 I realized that the future of my sons was not going to depend upon the wills that my wife and I were drawing up for our sons but on whether there was going to be a world worth living in in the year 2050 and my sons and their generation will feel the consequences, but also they're the ones who are already voting or will vote soon. So far from hiding the state of the world from young people, the purpose of this young chimpanzees for young people is to enable young people um, to make better decisions than their parents. So what do you think they should be doing, particularly given that you know, even the youngest among us seem to be far more tied to technology and some of the things that separate us socially from each other. I mean, I I see uh, in my peer group parents who have toddlers who are already using screens uh, far more than even their parents do. As a shameless author, one thing that I would say is read books, and we can talk about an excellent book that <laughs> that that I would recommend, The Third Chimpanzee for Young People. That's one thing. Another thing that young people um, can and should do is to vote. Astonishingly, the United States has the lowest voter turnout of any first world democracy. We recently had an election for mayor of my city, Los Angeles, one of the major cities in the U.S. And can you believe that only 20% of registered Los Angelinos could be bothered to vote for the most important civic position? That's one thing. Young people who are not yet old enough to vote can talk to their parents about for example, environmental matters, which often young people understand better than do their parents. So there are many things that young people can do. They can can vote, they can read, 
until they can vote, they can motivate their parents, they can talk to their friends, because there have been a couple of famous recent elections in the United States decided by a few hundred voters. But if one person persuades 10 friends, then 17 changes of vote by people each persuading 10 other people would have switched the results of the election for governor of Washington a few years ago. And 60 changes of vote would have changed the presidency in 2000. So there's also another corollary of our increasingly global society. And that is, first of all, that we are mating with people that are genetically more different than us more often because we're able to travel around. Uh, so our gene pool is becoming you know, global rather than local in a sense. So if there was a disaster, perhaps we've got some kind of fitness that at least a small proportion of us might survive. But in your book, Collapse, you talk about the, the, the collapse of civilizations, particularly ones that are small and closed societies. So is there anything now that you would want to update from the view um, of how you might scale uh, some of the ideas in collapse to a global society? That's one of the one of the big issues in the in the past, there have been societies that have have collapsed. Famous examples: the Roman Empire for possibly military or environmental reasons, Easter Island clearly for environmental reasons, the Anasazi in the U.S. Southwest for environmental reasons. But all of these collapses in the past were local collapses because the world was not globalized. When Easter Island society collapsed due to deforestation, nobody else in the world knew about it. And when even the most powerful the most advanced society of the New World Native Americans collapsed. The Maya civilization of the Yucatan, Guatemala, and Mexico collapsed. Classic Maya collapsed around AD 800. Not even Native Americans in Florida, maybe not even in the Valley of Mexico, knew about it because human relations were over such short distances. But in this modern globalized world, people everywhere know what is going on everywhere else and what people everywhere do has consequences. The United States within the last 13 years um, has experienced consequences of what people in Afghanistan are angry about, killing 2,993 Americans, or what people in Somalia are angry about leading to hijacking of, of ships. In short, in this globalized world, it's no longer possible for societies to collapse one by one. Um, a collapse that we face, if there is going to be a collapse, it will be a global collapse. And so what can we do now to prevent it? What can we do now to prevent it? We all know what we can do now. There's no secret about it. There's a lot of discussion about what the world's problems are, uh, problems of sustainability, problems of inequality around the world, uh, problems of energy. And we know perfectly well what to do about these problems, namely to, to reduce our energy consumption. The United States has energy consumption per person double that of Europe, but standards of living in Europe are, if anything, higher than those in the US, So, meaning that half of American energy consumption is wasted. And we know perfectly well how to save energy, follow the European example. Um, other things that we know about are to increase our use of sustainable energy sources, renewable energy sources, such as solar, wind, and tide. Reconsider nuclear energy because nuclear energy, yes, it has some horrible problems if something goes wrong, uh, but on the other hand, Fossil fuel energy has horrible problems constantly, even when it doesn't go wrong. And as for world problems, inequality around the world, again, we know what to do about it. Um, provide well-targeted foreign aid um, and um, do not exploit resources of overseas um, countries um, that have their own needs for their own fisheries and forests. Long-winded way of saying, we know what to do. What's missing is the political will. And that's, of course, where our show Inquiring Minds tries to come in. We, we try to bring science to the public so that we can change society. Um, and recently, there has been a meme going around, especially on Facebook that I noticed, of a CEO of Nestle who has, in a video, said that he believes that water should be like any other food stuff, uh, should be something that we have to pay for. Uh, and so this idea that water isn't a right for everyone, but rather it's just like any other food where you need to pay for um, the manufacturing of it and, and getting of it, which has caused an uproar, of course, because 
water is from something that most of us feel should be available to everyone because we need it to live. And why should only the rich, is the implication, get the water as opposed to the poor? Water should be available for everyone. And yet something like 70% of the world's people um, do not have access to clean, fresh water. The fact is that something like 80% of the world's fresh water sources are already being fully utilized. And the unutilized fresh water in the world is unutilized because it's in places like the center of Iceland or the deserts, the coast of northwestern um, Australia. I'm on the board of directors of World Wildlife Fund US, one an environmental organization. And the chairman of our board um, is the ex-CEO of Coca-Cola, why? Because Coca-Cola is 99.5% water. Coca-Cola is bottled with water in 87 countries around the world. Tanzanian Coca-Cola um, is from Tanzanian water. And Coca-Cola realized that water on the coast of Tanzania, Dar es Salaam, comes from the forested mountains of Tanzania, which are getting chopped down. And that the long-term survival of Coca-Cola in Tanzania was going to depend upon persuading Tanzanian farmers not to cut down forests. So Coca-Cola in Tanzania pays forests to maintain pays farmers to maintain their forests. In other words, um, what is good for Coca-Cola in this case is preservation of water supplies in Tanzania. But that's a model. That's one reason why I'm 51% optimistic. Big international companies are realizing that. What is good for the world is also good for Coca-Cola and Nestle's. And right here in California, we're living through a, a drought, which some argue is going to be historic, or already is historic in proportions. And yet there's a controversy because where the drought is hitting the hardest, of course, is the farmland in the interior of the state. But that's also where people don't have to pay for how much water they use to water their lawns, for example, because there's a lot of sort of subsidy. And, and some of these small towns have uh, laws in which they don't have to actually be metered in terms of how much water they use. So the question is, how do we uh, let people know that they need to respect water and presumably by paying for it, um, and yet not create a dichotomy in which only the rich get access to this precious resource? I heard a saying within the past year um, to the effect that the United States will start to take its various problems seriously when the majority of Americans, including rich Americans, start to suffer from our problems. As far as water is concerned, more than half of the farmers of the Central Valley of California are having their water supplies cut off if they do not have their own aquifers, if they are dependent upon irrigation water from the Sierras. Well, when farmers of the Central Valley um, are not able to produce crops, then the food that we buy in farmers markets in Los Angeles is either going to be there at l much lower availability or the prices are going to go up and prices shooting sky high. That gets people's attention. Absolutely. Well, um, this new version of the third chimpanzee certainly got my attention. So um, thank you very much for putting it together. I'm sure it will be on my list for um, adequate gifts or, or wonderful gifts, I should say, to all of the young people that I know. So Jared Diamond, thanks very much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. And you're obviously a person of sound judgment. There is so much to be said about this interview. It is a beautiful, wonderful interview, and Jared Diamond is just amazing to listen to. What struck me most was his passion. You know, it's sort of the most powerful argument that you can make to save the planet, which is to say, we're doing it for our kids, uh, for my kids in his case. And it's an argument that only a parent can make, and you just hear in his voice the authenticity of it. Yeah. In fact, just before the interview, we were talking about kids because I was saying the first time I interviewed him, um, I w had just gotten pregnant. And the second time that now I actually have a baby. And so, you know, my, pr my perspective has shifted a lot, uh, since then. And I was telling him about, about that. Um, and what amazed me is that we got to talking and the sound guy had to continue to try to interrupt us to say, okay, you know, you need to stop talking now so we can start recording. <laughs> um, but we were both really enjoying the conversation. So, uh, you know, I'm really grateful. Well, that makes for a better interview if you're sort of already getting to know. I mean, don't you think so, though? I mean, I think that's probably why the interview came off so well. 
Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I, I hope so. Although I do have to say that there was some great content that didn't make it into the interview because oh, right. we hadn't hit the record button. But um, but in any case, a lot of good stuff did did make it in and I'm, I'm very happy with it. Um, but, you know, there's this now maybe a trend to start making children's books or books for young adults about pretty intensive scientific ideas. So there's another book project that I wanted to mention uh, called Great Adaptations, um, which apparently which is, is an awesome is, name, if I could yeah, just say. <laughs> it is. It's as if Dr. Seuss, uh, you know, had met Charles Darwin. This is my, maybe what he would have written. Um, so they had a, you know, they had a Kickstarter campaign because, you know, these things are hard to get funded to begin with. They had a fundraising goal of $25,000. They doubled that uh, very quickly. And so it's become the fifth most funded children's book of all time on Kickstarter, which is kind of amazing. So the book is really about evolution and the idea that we need to educate our children from the very beginning about evolution. And so, you know, it's essentially a child child's guide to evolution similar to jared diamond's book although jared diamond is the book that is for an older audience you know people who are maybe in preteen and, and up so it's going to be available in october it's published by bread pig mm. <laughs> it's a great name um, but in any case you know it's something to look forward to and um, I, i'm sure that it'll be great in part because it's also um, advised by the wonderful scientist david sloan wilson Cool. So yeah, and if you want to know what happens if you take a young kid and educate them about evolution and how wonderful it is, you can just look at me. Because <laughs> no, just kidding, just kidding. But um, my grandfather was an evolutionary, not an evolutionary biologist. He was a limnologist. But all he talked about was evolution, and all he talked about to us as kids. Well, there were other things, but it seemed like it was Darwin, Darwin, Darwin. Uh, so I like grew up living and breathing evolution from around age. I don't know seven, nine, et cetera. And I, I'm still okay. So Yeah, look how you turned out. <laughs> Actually terrifying. So, uh, you know, but it's good that these kids books are happening. And I just, I wonder what the audience is uh, for kids science books. But, uh, you know, I think that going for that audience is definitely a new thing and is a thing to watch. Fifth most funded book on no, Kickstarter. I know, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> so there's an audience. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or recipes, anything else, to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Once again, I want to remind you that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Harry's Razors, a company that is disrupting the shaving industry by finally offering a high-quality shaving experience for a fraction of the price that you're probably used to paying. It only costs $15 for Harry's Razor set. It includes a handle, three blades, and shave cream, and shipping it to your door is included in that price. In fact, if you go to harrys.com, a Harry's shaving set is going to cost you even less than that because we have a special offer for Inquiring Minds listeners. And if you just put in the promo code Inquiring Minds, you know, one word, Inquiring Minds, they will knock $5 off of your first purchase. So go to harrys.com, buy some razors, and use that promo code Inquiring Minds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.